We are back. It's the Rush Fancast, Jer. It is. It I is. Know. Episode just... three. Can you believe it? No, I can't believe it. Episode one and two went so well. It, they really did. I think they went okay. Yeah, sure. So yeah. okay is good enough for us to get a third episode, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Okay so, is good enough. Okay is good enough. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about Hold Your Fire, which is one of my favorite Rush albums. Is it really? I think of, so, yeah. Like, you know why? Uh, this this is why. Uh, it has a special meaning for me. Do you remember what year Hold Your Fire came out? Yeah. Do you remember like, what a significant thing that happened in that year, Jer? Uh, the car accident? Yes. Yeah. You and I got into a really bad car accident right. just a few months before Hold Your Fire came That's out. That's right. Yeah. And you were badly hurt. Yeah, I was hurt. You were I didn't hurt. break any bones. But you broke your face, basically. <laughs> my face was quite swollen. Yeah. The whites of my eyes were And it, it kind of, your, red. your head kind of reminds me of one of the orbs <laughs> on the front cover of uh, Hold Your Fire. Yeah, it, I, had it a big, like. I had a big grapefruit on my head for a, a couple of weeks. Uh, but Hold Your Fire came out, I believe, you know, I wrote it down, but I, it was September 6th or something like that, 1987. So it was probably... Two months after the car accident we no, had? I was going to say a month, but two months? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think it was July when we uh, got in that uh, death-defying accident. We'd have to see. We could find out because we were we, coming back from a concert. We could find out. Uh, but anyway, I remember bringing the album to your house. You I remember, remember bringing the album to your house. I remember or listening. Maybe, maybe it was at my house. Maybe it was. I think we listened to this album for the first time together while playing chess. Really? In your... In that's your dungeon-like room. That's about the geekiest thing I've ever heard in my <laughs> life. I think it was. I think we, we sat in your parents, in the bedroom of your parents' house, right? Okay. Uh, that was like underground, right? It was like dark. Right. It was like the darkest room I've ever been in in and my entire life. And we played chess and listened to Hold Your Fire? That we did. Wow. That's what I remember. Okay. You could... remember coming to my house. Maybe we did that after. My memory, you know, it was 32 years ago, Jerry. Right. So we're going to talk about Hold Your Fire, but first I want to mention that you can follow us on Twitter at Rush Fancast and Instagram at The Rushcast. These are all true. And you can join our email list, therushcast at gmail.com. Right. So do all of that while you're listening to us talk about Hold Your Fire. So why don't we start with the first song, Jer? The first song on Hold Your Fire. Is Force 10. Is Force 10. You know, I was look, this time I looked up some reviews okay. of Hold Your Fire you know, when they came out. Because there's, you know, Cygnus x1.net that's a big rush it's a huge site. yeah yeah it's huge rush site and they have for every album they have links to reviews that came out at the time okay and interviews and stuff like that so this time i kind of went down a little rabbit hole and the reviews were mostly positive this surprises it you it does surprise me right it doesn't it surprise you at all not really i mean you know outside of rolling stone i think critics were kind to rush no yeah, they, I think that most of the reviews were from rock magazines. You know, they weren't reviewed in the New York Times or anything. And I would assume that rock magazines would have a problem with Rush's direction, the keyboards. Well, they, I mean, they, they, had they, already, they had already strayed in that direction, though. I mean, yeah, you figured pa that the, Power Windows, you know, had been out for a year or so at that point. Yeah. And people knew where Rush was headed. So this was just kind of another step in that direction. Yeah, I just assumed that reviewers wouldn't like it. Okay, but, but like, they did. But they did. Kerrang! Magazine. Kerrang! Magazine. Kerrang? Yeah, they liked it. They See, liked that, it. Now that surprises me. The Kerrang! <laughs> Magazine 
their grading system, the highest you can get is five Ks. So each K represented a star. A star. Okay. So they got five Ks for this album. Wow. I just wondered what they did for albums that got three Ks. Did they really put KKK underneath albums? <laughs> I, I didn't a, even think of that. It's a terrible idea. Yeah, of a probably. grading system. Maybe just nobody ever got threes. Yeah, either, either give them a four or give them a two or <laughs> give them two three, and a half. three and a half Ks just, just, just to make it look good. Right. But the, the Buffalo News, imagine that, Buffalo News, the best quote from that was about Getty or I guess about Neil. Next time he should loosen up and try a love song. What? Isn't that the dumbest thing you've ever heard? Yeah. Why would... Well, obviously the Buffalo News wasn't the place to turn for <laughs> scintillating music reviews. For, for rock criticism? <laughs> it's just, it, it sounds like somebody who's never listened to Rush before, maybe. And probably true. Which always makes me wonder about who can write an accurate review. Can only fans of a particular band write an accurate review? Well, I don't know, because if you go on Amazon.com, for instance, and you looked at the reviews for Hold Your Fire, I did not. But I guarantee you they're all five-star raving reviews from fans. Right. I mean, you're not going to write a review of Rush if you're a Rush fan and say, this album sucked. Well, I think if you're a, a professional critic and you like Rush, you would have something to bounce ideas against, like this album versus that album and how, how they're coming along as a band or with their straying from where they be- they started from or something like that. Mm. So I don't know if you'd have to be a Rush fan in order to even appreciate Hold Your Fire. I can't imagine somebody owning one Rush album and it being Hold Your Fire. Probably not. You know, it's going to be moving pictures. Or they, they bought Hold Your Fire and decided they didn't like Rush and didn't buy any more. Perhaps. Yeah. That'd be a tragedy. It would be. But I do love this album. I think it's a great album. And you're surprised that I do? I don't know why. Yeah, I was surprised that you love, that's one of your top, like, Oh, yeah. Well, you know what it is? It's music brings me back to a particular time in my life, you know? And that that album just, I don't love it because you you got hurt. I love it because- That's why I love it. (laughs) I like being hurt. No, because, you know, we just graduated from high school. True. We we just started college. You know, you have no worries at that time of your life. You don't realize it then, but- that's a great time of your life. Right. So it reminds me of that time of my life. So that's why I, I love it. I mean, and, I, lo- I loved it then, but I love it more now because of that. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. And in between seeing the show on the Power Windows Tour in 86, and when this album came out in 87, I blew through every Rush album there was. I bought every Rush album. And by this time, you I, were was, in I was, yeah, I was in deep it's all i listen to i only listen to rush so look what i have here i have the ticket stub i didn't realize this but we only saw one show on the hold your fire tour what we went to one i thought we saw them more than once on the hold your fire tour but i only have one, one i thought ticket we saw them proof. more than once on every tour so this is december 6th 1987 wow. at the brendan Byrne arena in yeah. east rutherford new jersey let me guess can i guess what what row i know we were at, way up front Take a guess where we were sitting. Uh, we were in section eight, which for those of you who live in New Jersey and ever went to Brendan Burn Arenas, sections nine, eight, and seven were right up front. So right. eight was- Scalpers cent- would tell you otherwise. 
scalpers if you like right they would say one two and three are up front they're all the way in the back on the floor the worst seats so if you ever go back in time and go back to the brendan Byrne arena don't buy tickets in sections one two what are the sections called now i don't even try to buy floor tickets anymore yeah i don't either um anyway section eight was the center section what row do you think we were in we were in row 15 no 19 19 oh so close. Uh, row s to be specific but i i counted the letters so, uh that's good row 19 uh, any guesses as to how much the ticket was oh man row 19 1987 15 dollars close oh. 17 <laughs> can you imagine <laughs> the last time we saw rush i think the tickets were like 140 dollars, something like that and yeah. we were all the way at the top with the fees oh boy a uh, dollar seventy-five fee. Uh, the grand total was nineteen dollars and twenty-five cents. <laughs> so for we... <laughs> less than twenty dollars, do you think that we bought them at that place in Long Branch? Yeah, that... yep, the place in Long Branch. There was a surf shop in Long Branch. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That nobody knew about. Right. And we would go there at what six o'clock in the morning on a Saturday when the tickets went on sale and wait for three hours till they opened. Right. And the guy who owned the shop was awesome, and he yeah, used to come out and get everybody's order like right. how many tickets do you want how many tickets do you want and as soon as the tickets went on sale he just start punching them all in yeah and then he would give them to everybody wish i knew his name i love that guy <laughs> he was my best friend he was he was great uh i'm sure it doesn't even exist anymore i don't remember the name but uh but that was cool yeah so anyway cool. uh and i have the set list from the show we Ooh, can let's ref- hear it. we can you want to hear the whole set list of course you want to go through the whole thing yes uh the big money See, they opened up with the first song off the album. Right. Uh, well, the first song off the previous album. That's what I meant. Okay. Subdivisions, <laughs> Limelight, uh, Marathon, going back to Power Windows immediately. Nice. Uh, so now we get to the new songs, Turn the Page, Prime Mover, uh, Manhattan Project, Closer to the Heart, uh, Red Sector A. Wow. Then we're back to some new songs, Force 10, Time Stand Still. Uh, we do Distant Early Warning. And then back to some more new songs. Uh, you know, the guy with the, the cutoff shirt is, you know, having to smoke outside <laughs> as they do lock and key and mission. <laughs> Territories, YYZ. Uh, Neil does his drum solo. And then we've got Red Lenses, Spirit of the Radio, and Tom Sawyer. Wow. Encores of 2112, La Villa Strangiato, and In the Mood. Yeah, they used to end with In the Mood a lot. Yeah. Somewhere along the line, it changed to Working Man. Yeah. Well, we can get into this at a, a later date, but. They're no longer in the mood. What are you trying to say? Working Man's a better song than In the Mood, don't you think? Yeah. So that's probably why they switched. They probably figured it out. Yeah, it's definitely has uh, um, more room for extended jams. So anyway, uh, Force 10. We got off on a tangent. Oh, yeah. You would mention... Speaking of, of tangents, I have super tangents for Force 10. Super tangents? Super tangents. Well, do tell. So Force 10 refers to something on the... There's a scale, Steve, for the names of different types of wind. Okay. Did you know that? It's called the Buford scale. Okay. Is this what how they measure hurricanes? Yeah, this one is... The, evidently, the Buford scale is for ships at sea. So the wind speeds aren't as high as they are for hurricanes. Like 10 is a hurricane, is the beginning of, I think, the, of the hurricane wind speed. It's like 79 miles an hour or something like that. Okay. 
but it goes up to the Beaufort scale goes up to 13. Okay. Whereas hurricanes, I don't know, they have, you know, category one, category two, and stuff like that. But I thought it was interesting. The Beaufort scale was created by a man named Francis Beaufort in 1805 and was first officially used on the HMS Beagle. Wow. You know what the HMS Beagle is? Uh, a ship, I would guess. <laughs> it's the ship that Charles Darwin was on. Really? When he started researching. He so the first research. time they used the Beaufort officially. scale officially was on Charles Darwin's ship. Yep. That's cool. Yeah. And when you look at it, because I did a lot of looking at different uh, sites, it's observation-based. It goes by how high the waves look. So they measure the wind by the waves. Yeah. And if you recall, uh, when they played the song live, there was a cartoonish kind of video of wind, right? And tornadoes and stuff. Don't you remember that? I do not remember that. Yeah. Whenever they played Force 10, there would be... Sure, it wasn't the movie Twister? No, it was a cartoon and there was a tornado and there were sheep flying through the air. You don't remember that? I don't. I don't. The thing I remember uh, from that tour was that they dropped red balloons at the end of the show. Do you remember that? I don't remember that. <laughs> The things we remember. <laughs> but anyway, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I never thought of wind when I heard the song. And I never put two and two together with the video. I just thought it was, I don't know, just some goofy video they were playing. Yeah, I'm sure that um, Force 10 is supposed to represent like the top of some scale okay. of intensity. So I guess the song is about intensity. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm getting from it. And uh, one thing I noticed uh, when perusing websites, researching for our little podcast here, that this is one of the few Rush songs that had a writing credit by someone else other than Getty, Neil, and Alex. Right. And so you knew this as well, I assume. Pie Dubois? I would say Pie Dubois. That's how you would say it? Yeah, he's written, he co-wrote, obviously, uh, uh, Tom Sawyer. Mm-hmm. And another song, Test for Echo, I think he was credited. And he wrote on. a poem called Between Sun and Moon. Right. Which was obviously the inspiration for the song on Counterparts. Between sun and moon. Right. Correct. And did you read about his disappearance? I did not. <laughs> I didn't get that in depth, Jerry. I'm, just looking, I'm looking for little nuggets here. I'm not... I was just curious <laughs> who this guy was. He he was, uh, he's sort of like, you know, the Grateful Dead. Jerry Garcia had a writing partner in the Grateful Dead. I can't I don't know why I can't remember his name. But he wrote the lyrics to most of Grateful Dead songs, this other guy. Okay. And he was like part of the band, but he didn't play an instrument. He was just their lyricist. For the most part. Okay. The other guy, um, was it Phil Lesh? I don't remember. He, uh, Somebody else in the band also had a writing partner. So the lyrics were mostly written by poets for the Grateful Dead. Okay. So I guess that's what this guy Dubois was for a band called Max Webster. They used to open up for Rush a lot. Did they? Yeah. That was, they toured with Rush for a long time back in the early days. You know, early 70s. Before we saw them. Right. Before, I mean, before Marillion. Yeah. And, and you would see... You know, I've seen ticket stubs from, you know, the early days, and it would say Rush and Max Webster. So perhaps that's where they met yeah. this guy, because he wrote almost all the lyrics for Max Webster. Yeah, he was in the studio with them, and I, writing I, lyrics on the fly. And I never never heard a Max Webster song nope. in my life. Nope. And I don't think I'm going to. I was thinking about checking them out. Why not? I just don't have any, any, <laughs> any reason. Any interest at all? No interest at all. I have no idea. So last time we spoke... You talked about, you know, the, the first song on many of the Rush albums was that kind of anthem. How do you feel this song works as a first song yeah. of an album? I mean, it comes in with that little chorus thing, the keyboards. I mean, it just, it starts the album off great. Yeah. Again. 
they really uh, starting to write those. And in in later anthems. tours, they would start the show with Force Ten right. sometimes. So uh, they would great song. And um, what's the song about though? Um, you know, I don't know. Um, it's not about wind. I don't think. <laughs> I don't think it's about wind. <laughs> you know, it's it's about. It's, he doesn't mention the Buford scale at all. Tough times demand tough talk, demand tough hearts, demand tough songs. Is this a, a tough song it's supposed to be? <sighs> I don't know. We can rise and fall like empires, flow in and out like the tide, be vain and smart, humble and dumb. We can hit and miss like pride. You know, and, and most of the verses go similarly. Uh, look into the eye of the storm. Look out for the force without form. Look around at the sight and sound. Look in, look out, look around. There's kind of like an umbrella idea behind this album a little bit it's it's about inspire a lot of songs are about inspiration and connection but what does hold your fire mean maybe well, we should from, start there well it's it's from mission right it's the first line of mission mm-hmm. by itself hold your fire well yeah. what does that mean to you it would mean don't shoot at somebody right see that i don't think that that's what that's not what they mean that's though. what they mean though. but when you hear hold your fire you're thinking of right you know. It's got a double meaning, but I I don't think that hold your fire, don't shoot at somebody is where they're going with no, this. No, I think hold your fire means hold on to your inspiration. Hold on mm-hmm. to the thing. And the fire is what burns inside you. Right. Right? Yeah, exactly. So you're holding on to the spark of creativity Yeah. that gets you to where you want to go. Two of the, the phrases that I did write down from the lyrics, attack the day like birds of prey. That's a good one. Which is... Or scavengers undercover. Right. And uh, one I had to look up, which I never... I didn't realize, I guess it's French. An air of joie de vivre. Joie de vie. Joie de vie. Do you know what that means? Um, it means like um, being carefree. Right? It means the joy of living. Oh, that's close. That, sort that, of. But that's close, yeah. yeah. And uh, getting back to Martin Popoff, oh boy. he did write a Rush book. Really? Content Under Pressure. 30 Years of Rush at Home and Away by Martin Popoff. And I actually have this book. Do you really? Which is why I remembered the name. I don't know if I read it cover to cover, but but I do own the book. You just read the middle? Yeah. So why don't we move on to track two? Oh, I wanted to talk about those lyrics. Oh, About how that relates to the whole idea of the song. Please do. Because I think what the song is about is how different people can live their lives. You can attack the day like like birds birds of prey, prey, which means you're actively participating in your own life. Mm-hmm. You're going after what you want. I don't know, you know, mm-hmm. with your eagle eye, uh, spotting prey and whatnot, or scavengers undercover. So you can slink around in darkness. Steal from other people. Steal from other people. Or just be an inactive participant in your own life. Let things happen. And you just kind of go and- you Cool know, and remote like dancing girls? That I don't understand. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Oh. What's the next line after that? Cool and remote. Uh, like cool dancing. and remote like dancing girls in the heat of the beat and the lights. Yeah, I don't know what that means. I think it's, I don't know. Well, I don't know but, what it means. But, uh, you know, I, I, like I said in, in uh, past podcasts, I never really dug deep into the lyrics yeah. that much. I mean, I just enjoy the song and the juggling man on the inside of the cover. <laughs> yes. Juggling the flames. That's right. Uh, as we move on to track two, time, time stands, stands still. still. 
I would say it's my favorite song on the album. What would you say? No? It's it's not my favorite song on the album. It's a great song, but mm-hmm. I think my favorite song is Mission. Okay. Um, I think Time Stand Still can be summed up basically as we're going to die. <laughs> we're all going to die. And this is as someone, it's a song about looking. About appreciating the moment you're in. Right. Right? Looking at your past, but not dwelling on it. Mm-hmm. Realizing how your past relationships have changed over the years. Or evaporated. Or evaporated entirely. And how in order to make them stronger for the future, you have to pay attention to them in the present. Okay. That's what the song's about. Yeah. And it has Amy Mann on it for some reason. Well, uh, do you know who uh, the two first choices were? They had two other women that really? they, they uh, approached rock? first before Amy Mann. Other, do you know who they were? No, I've never even thought about that. Um, other, now, now one, there were both both bigger stars than Amy Mann were. Okay. And they were big in the 80s. Big in the 80s. Yeah. And still and still alive today and um, probably still recording, I would say. Mm, who could it be? The first choice had one of the biggest hits of the early 80s. So was it a solo person or was it solo per- band? Solo person. Second person was in a band. Um, Glad I, you don't know. This I is good. I don't know. Let me guess. Let me guess though. Yeah, please. The biggest hits of the, so like one hit, it's kind of a one hit wonder. Yeah. Well, she had, a, no, she had other hit songs, but she had one huge hit. Mm. MTV video, whole thing. Boy, that's not really helping. Well, I mean, I'm going to go with um, Pat Benatar. No. Good guess though. Oh, thanks. Cindy Lauper. Cindy Lauper. Can you imagine? Cindy Lauper on Time Stand Still? Yeah, I mean, it's not a really vocally demanding. Well, really she, could have, have, she could have done it. It could have been anybody, let's face it. Yeah, but I think it would have been, I guess, because she was so big back then. I mean, think about it. This is 1987. Cindy Lauper was huge. Time After Time was a huge hit, too. Oh, yeah, that's right. True um, Colors. That's True a great, Colors. That's a great song. True but I, I think her biggest hit was probably Girls Just Want to Have Fun, right? Yeah. That was the one I was referring to. Yeah. Uh, but those other two songs were huge. They were. Uh, and the second person is in a band I know you love. Oh, is it the Go-Go's? No. Um, no, not Belinda Carlisle. Yeah. That's a good guess, too. Thanks. Um, Fleetwood Mac? No. A band I love. But, uh, I think you do. Oh, the Cowboy Junkies? No. Oh, that was no, before No, you don't were... love them that. You don't love this band that much, but oh, I, think okay. you, I think you like them. I can't even... The Pretenders. <gasps> Chrissy Hine. That's yeah. incredible. Can you imagine? That would have been cool. She's cool. She's right? very cool. Why did your research turn up why they turned it down? No, I just... Uh, seemed like an easy gig. They asked Cindy first, they asked Chrissy second, and then they asked Amy Mann. She said yes. And guess how much she got? How much did Amy Mann make for <laughs> singing was... on Time Stand Still? Now, is it ridiculously a lot or ridiculously a little? I'm going to say 500 bucks. 500 bucks. <laughs> It's more than that. More oh. than that. It's it's. I would say, to me, it's not a lot, but it's more than six hundred bucks. Two thousand. Two thousand dollars. You think that's a good payday for a couple for, of lines in a rush song? Yeah, for you, one line really. Yeah, but two grand. That's it. I mean, I know it was nineteen eighty seven. Yeah, what's some, that today? Like a hundred thousand dollars? I don't know, but it just seems like she should get more than that. I don't know. I don't know. Was she even solo back then, or was she still in two t- till Tuesday? Probably still on Tuesday. I'd have to look. I'm not going to do research on that. That's not <laughs> happening. I, you know, I want to do all I can for this podcast, Jar, but you're not researching. There are, there are there are limits. 
And did you know that Time Stands Still went to number 42 on the U.S. singles charts? No. 42. That's pretty good for Rush. Yeah. I th- I'd say. I don't ever remember hearing it on the radio. The video was big on MTV. There was a terrible video. Worst but video ever. It got a lot of play. So I don't know about the radio, but I know on MTV they they got some good play out of that uh, yeah out of that song. And I mean, back then MTV was the thing. If you were played on MTV, you know your song would rise up the charts. Right. Yeah. It is. It's an interesting song that even be popular though. It's a, it's a kind of another sad song. Yeah. It's really a song about just growing older. And I think Getty's singing on on that song is some of his best vocal work. Yeah. He goes high, but not too high. Yeah. Yeah, it's, and it is a really good song. Although on this song and on other, other songs, it's even more dramatic, but Alex isn't even, where's Alex on this album? Right, well, that's the thing. This is probably why Alex was not happy during this period of Rush. Yeah, that's he's what, buried that's what, in yeah. this album. He's buried, but but when he does appear, though, I mean, he... He does great work as always. Yeah, but not it's as hard. It's it's hard for him to find the space here. I think. Yeah, unlike Power Windows, where he definitely right. He he really shined there. He elbowed his way into that right. album. But it's, I think this is where he where he put his foot down after this album and said, "Look, you know, this uh, keyboards experiment was all great, guys. It's great. But, Some know, experiments fail. Right. Well, I don't know if it failed. I mean, I think there's. I mean, I think like I said, I love this album. Yeah. But but I think if I'm Alex. You know, I'm thinking, hey, I'm a guitarist here, you know? Yeah. How can I be a guitarist right. in, a, in, in a band where there's no guitar on the album? Right. <laughs> I mean, as much as we love the album, yeah. you know, if you really sit back and think about it, Alex must not have been thrilled yeah. with the direction, which is, uh, which is good because they, veer, you know, they veered off in this keyboard area, which, I mean, created two great albums, in my opinion. And then in Presto, they started kind of... Going back. Going back. Going the back roots. the other way, going yeah. back to the roots. So why don't we move on to um, track three on Open the Secrets. album, Open Secrets. Well, I guess we all have these feelings We can't leave on the side Some of them burned on our ceilings Some of them learned as a child The things that we're concealing We'll never let us of you know doing research i found this website um that i follow on twitter called ultimate classic rock okay i've heard of it and they um they have a list of rush songs ranked so they ranked all 167 rush songs from one to 167 okay and And where does open secrets fall well open secrets is number 147 on the list well, the thing is, though, I mean, if you had to make this list, you'd have to put some song at 147 also. The question is, would... The, the reason I bring it up is because, let's see, how many how many songs on Hold Your Fire? One, two... Ten. Three, four, five, six songs oh. fall in the 140s or lower. And what was the total number of, of songs? 167. So mm. six out of the 10 songs on Hold Your Fire on this list... You know, by written by this one guy, right? Were in the you know bottom fifth, I would say, or even bottom sixth of Rush songs. Would you agree with that or not agree with that? It's a it's a hard 
thing to say. I mean, there's so many great Rush songs. Right. I there mean, would definitely yeah. be 75 Rush songs I could probably just name off the top of my head that are better than the, the any six. Of this. Are, right. Yeah. So, right. I don't know. But, are, but are there 140 that are better? <laughs> That's the question. We'd have to, you know what? We'll have to make our own list. That oh could be a, that could be a podcast. That would take forever. Right. Remember we tried to make a list of like our ideal set list? Mm-hmm. That didn't go out, didn't go so well. No. But that, you it's know, so I, that's, a, that's a good experiment though. I think we should do that. You know, we did that just for ourselves, but that would be a good podcast for us to each do wow. our own set list and then reveal to each other as we're doing this. So anyway, Open Secrets was number 147. Thoughts on Open Secrets, Jer? Open Secrets is uh, another great uh, song, another emotional song. I think mm-hmm. that Neil really he hits it. There's a cut. There's a uh, second nature is uh, on the same theme, but you know, an open secret is something that only a few people in a select group know mm-hmm. about, or something that everybody knows about but refuses to recognize. Like they refuse to even talk about it. So I think in that vein, it's it's more of a this is some kind of emotional thing that everybody recognizes what's going on in relationships. Mm-hmm. Everybody recognizes how people interact with each other, but nobody really wants to talk about it. That's what I'm getting from this song. Okay. The bass line at the beginning is awesome. Getty's ba- bass work on this album is just great. I mean, unlike the guitar, it's right out front in a lot of songs like this one and turn, oh, yeah. the, and turn, turn the page. Turn the page, yeah. I mean, it's just just. I was gonna, when we get to that, I've got to ask you about how he's playing that that bass line. That's crazy sound. And um, what I did did find is that Neil mentioned when it comes to the lyrics that uh, many of his lyrics were not based on his experiences, but based on conversations he had with other people. And he made sure to mention that when referring to this song. Oh, really? So this song was inspired by a conversation he had with someone else, not mm. by his own experiences. And that's interesting just in general, just because I always assume when I hear a Rush song written by Neil, that he's taking the lyrics from his own personal experiences. And that right. Especially he nec- uses I a lot. Right. And that may not necessarily be the case. Right. And it definitely isn't the case with this song. You know, he's always been, a, especially in the earlier albums, he's definitely a, a rational guy. Right. You hear rational when you assume he's talking about himself. Right. But there are a lot more rational people in this world than Neil. Well, there's few, but sure. <laughs> he doesn't really he doesn't really go in for uh, personally. I mean, obviously, I I don't know him, but what I know about him is that he he he's a very private person. You never will know him, Jerry. I know who who, never. Could, who could. Um, Getty and Alex are lucky to know him. They are, but he doesn't uh, he doesn't give in to the trappings of fame. He's not interested in being famous. He's not interested in not that he's not interested in interacting with, with fans. He's not interested in interacting with fans. He's interested in interacting with people. Right. That just don't know who he is. Yeah. Like if he just ran into somebody on the street and they didn't recognize him, he's right in. Yeah, he's, he feels embarrassed to I be... He hel- feels embarrassed. He just wants to be... A normal a, guy. He just I wants just, to be a regular person. Right. It feels like such a personal song. I'm just surprised to hear that. That it's not based on his own experiences. Well, see, now you're going to look at every Rush song and wonder... Right. Is he talking about himself or is he talking about some random person that he ran into on his motorcycle tour? Right. Which totally could be. Well, I mean, so there's the, 
one verse is, I lie awake with my secrets spinning around my head, something that somehow escaped me, something you shouldn't have said. I was looking out the window. I should have looked at your face instead. That seems... That's real personal. That is very personal. But it could have been personal for someone else and not Neil. Right. It's also a great, a great image of, you know, in relationships sometimes mm-hmm. you're not really paying attention to right. things when you should be. Right. You should be looking at your partner's face. And, right. Instead of looking out the window or looking at your phone or right. watching TV or. Well, back in 1987, people weren't looking at their phones. <laughs> that's right. They were looking out the window. <laughs> they were talking on their phones. <laughs> Nobody talks on their phones. No. I don't even know why we call them phones. Why don't we move on to uh, second nature? Not to be second nature. I mean the places where we live. Let's talk about this sensibly. We're not insensitive. Number 146 on that same list. Wow. Uh, that ultimate classic rock created. So one one song better than Open Secrets, Jer. So I don't know how you... I don't know how you rank that one. I don't know That's how you do hairs. it. That's splitting hairs. So uh, thoughts on Second Nature? I think, uh, first of all, that Alex must have been in the bathroom the entire time this song was, <laughs> was being recorded. There is no guitar. Where is the guitar on this song? Yeah. For it's, like the first it, minute and a half. Yeah, it's... Uh, nothing. It's, it's non-existent. Non-existent. I, don't, I just don't understand that. There's no... There's hardly any guitar in this one at all. But second nature in general, you know, is something that you can practice. It, it's something that you can practice and then it becomes just natural to do. Mm-hmm. It's so odd to start off a song, a memo to a higher office, <laughs> an open letter to the powers that be. A god, I, a king of head of state. Right, right. a captain of industry. I, I guess there's just something about this song. I, I, now that I think about it, I don't understand a few of the songs of this album. I don't think I understand what this song is about at all. The one one lyric, Now I Lay Me Down in Dreamland, it reminds me of that prayer, Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep. Yeah. Pray but the Lord my soul to keep. Children used to say that. Right. What a terrifying <laughs> image right before bed. But that that's what that lyric reminds me of. So Yeah, I just don't... The, I don't know what second nature has to do with any of the, con- the content of the song at all. Folks have got to make choices, and choices got to have voices. Folks are basically decent, conventional wisdom would say, while well, we read about the exception in the papers every day. I, don't, I, don't I, I, I guess maybe what he's saying is that, that we, we should know better, you know what I mean? Um, well, yeah, I guess so, because it says it ought to be second nature. Right. At least that's the way I feel. It should be second nature to, to not destroy each other. Right. That's what I'm thinking. You know, right. it but should be it should be obvious. Right. But but you think isn't. if people would practice that mm-hmm. more, not punching each other in the face. But I guess nobody does. Yeah. I mean I, I think Neil was getting real deep with the lyrics here. Um because clearly and we'll get to this in, in the next podcast. I mean he clearly went to China and Japan and Let's not all, talk about that. And all over Asia and just was, you know, getting his, very introspective. Yeah, getting re- you know, probably sitting on top of a mountaintop. Who wouldn't do that? Well, you have the time and the inclination. Yeah, exactly. And the money. So uh, why don't we move on to the last song on side one of Hold Your Fire, and that is Prime Mover. Prime Mover.
So uh, why don't you give me your thoughts on prime mover, John? Do you know what a prime mover is? A deity? Uh, Maybe. It can be. It can be, yeah. A prime mover, there's like a philosophical prime mover, and then there's a mechanical prime mover. Okay. Explain so the difference, please. The philosophical prime mover would be uh, a god who kicks things off and then recedes the background. So he he kind of creates the world and then sits back and watches to see what happens. Right, and everything just kind of unfolds. If I was to start an ant farm, the, let's say, and just then watched what happened. You would, would be the, the ant prime mover. They might they might worship you. They'd be like, "Hey, remember that guy who was here?" Whenever I turn on the light to go to the bathroom, right? They'd be like, they'd all cower. <laughs> so we so dark in that stupid ant hill. Uh, um, and then the mechanical prime mover is whatever gives a system energy to move. Okay. So like if it's a an engine that you know like uh, electricity, right? There's the uh, steam that turns the turbines that makes electricity is that how electricity works i'm not sure exactly how it works i didn't know that was going to be a topic today, so I, did, I didn't really prepare <laughs> you have to for be that. prepared for every eventuality <laughs> steve so yeah it's something that begins a process okay um and i you know, philosophically it is more like um like deism all right like of our a lot of our founding fathers were deists here in the united states I'm thomas about. jefferson thomas jefferson those guys they believed in god but they didn't think that God had anything to do with our daily existence whatsoever. That's pretty fair. Yeah. It's assumption. about as close as you can be to an atheist at a time when being an atheist was probably a very dangerous thing to be. And I think Thomas Jefferson specifically was was one of those people. Yeah. George Washington maybe too? I don't know. John Adams? I know that um, Jefferson edited the Bible. Why? He edited the New Testament and kind of cut it up into what he thought Jesus actually said. Really? Yeah, there's like a... So the things he didn't think Jefferson. Jesus said, he cut out. Yeah. I think huh. if you go to, what's the name of his house? Monticello. Yeah. If you go there, I think you can see it. I've been there. Oh. I don't recall that, but it's possible it's there. I right. didn't, the I Jefferson didn't... Bible, I think it's called. Wow. Appropriately enough. Could you get a copy of that? Oh, I don't know. Probably. I would like to get a copy of that. We're off on a way yeah, off on a tangent, so aren't we? No, no, it's okay. It's okay. So, so prime mover the song. Well, actually, I read that this was inspired by a Twilight Zone episode called Prime Mover, or at least the title of the song was okay. inspired by that. What I mean, was that? What was the episode about? Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, Buddy Ebsen played Jimbo Ebsen. Cobb. That's a good the name. The title character of Prime Mover was based on an unpublished story by George Clayton Johnson. Jimbo, who runs a cafe, has psychokinetic powers. And when his partner, Ace Larson, discovers <laughs> Jimbo's power would allow him to manipulate dice, oh. they go to Las Vegas. Wow. They win big, but Ace cannot stop gambling despite the pleas of his girlfriend, Kitty. And Jimbo cares more about his friend than all the money in the world. That's what it says here. This is from songfacts.com. Well, see, that would be... Um, about Russia's prime mover. I don't know how true that is. Or Who am I to doubt it? Uh, Who am I to doubt songfacts.com? Uh, hey, well, you know. Well, that would be a prime mover, right? He's setting something in motion. Yeah. Whether it's... It, it could be just the plot of the entire show. Mm-hmm. So what... what have, you got some of the lyrics there in front of you. Maybe uh, throw some at me. The, the weird thing about this song is that it definitely is about making things happen. Mm -hmm. Again, it's one of those things that Neil's always talking about is, is keeping, you know, and hold your fire, keeping the fire alive, keeping your interest in whatever you're doing, keeping, you know, your passion 
alive. And this is sort of the th same thing. It's what I think that's what he's talking about in here. From the point of conception to the moment of truth, at the point of surrender to the burden of proof, from the point of ignition to the final drive, the point of the journey is not to arrive. Love that line. Yeah, it's a good line. Just good uh, line. you're out heading somewhere and not not to get anywhere, just to just to see where it takes you. Right. That's great. Exactly, yeah. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. And the weird thing in the lyrics, anything can happen is all in lowercase. Really? Yeah. And the rest of the song is in uppercase, except for anything can happen. That's interesting. Yeah. And when I was reading the lyrics on some lyric website, lyric genius maybe, I don't know. Whenever, when they had the word truth in this song, it was a capital T, not a lowercase t. Okay. So a capital T truth is different from, a, a, a lower key truth is the things that we consider to be true, okay. basically. But a capital T truth is things that are true regardless of what anyone believes about them. So they're true no matter whether you believe they're true or not? Right. Even things that we consider to be true might not actually be true. And that would be a lowercase t. No, that would be an uppercase T. Something that is actually true regardless. Like at one point in time, people thought that the earth was the center of the universe. It's not? It's, it's not. <laughs> no, I'm the I, center I, of the universe. I knew, I knew that. Or the center of the solar system. Right? Okay. Well, not the solar system, the center of our system, that the earth, uh, that the sun revolved around the earth. And people believed that for a really long time, but it wasn't true. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter what you believe. It's only the capital T is what the actual truth is, not what people believe is the truth. Right. But if you believe that the earth is the center of the universe or the center of the solar system, wouldn't you make that a capital T truth because that's what you believe? Well, you might, but- You'd be it, wrong. You'd be wrong. In this instance, <laughs> in this instance, I guess it's more of a philosophical thing that you would, unless you have a definitive proof of something, you would make it a lowercase t. Right, but in your everyday life. Okay, but who decides what's a capital T and what's a lowercase t? That's a very good question. The so. prime mover. The prime mover does. There right. you go. And you'll find out full circle, baby. Yeah, find out on Sunday when you go to mass. He'll tell you all about it. <laughs> that is not happening. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> and the song itself, I think, is a great song. Um, you know the the musicianship on this song is great. It's one of the better ones on the album, I think. Yeah, definitely. And um, great way to end side one if you happen to have this on vinyl, which I do not. Which yeah, I do. Did. I, I don't sure. think. No, I don't have it on vinyl. Yeah, I wish I did. You could play it on CD and just stop for thirty seconds. There you go. Start it over again. Or play it on my A track and let that <laughs> let that track fade out while the while it comes back up. I had an A track. Uh, believe it or not, it was um, was it uh, American Pie? What's that song? Bye bye, Miss American Pie. Yeah. It's called American Don Pie. Don McLean. Yeah, Don McLean song. It stopped in the middle. Well, yeah. And did that clank and then started over. It faded in on the other side. The problem the other track. with eight track tapes is the album had to be eight tracks for it to work right. So that was the I whole. I never thought of that. Well, of course. So there was, if there was 10 songs on the album, two of the songs would fade out in the middle and come back up because they had. Eight how long was there were each, only eight tracks. There how were, long was each track on the tape? I don't know. I don't know. And the problem is if it was a Rush album, forget about it. Because, <laughs> you know, if the song was eight minutes, that threw everything off. Right. I don't know how many minutes each track was, but right. yeah, eight tracks. And if you had 10 songs, you had to 
horn them in there somehow. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. You learned something today, Jim. I, I did. I never thought about eight track. What that actually what meant? That actually meant. That's like people who who think pipe cleaners are just for arts and crafts. Oh, I know. That's weird, right? I, the kids, my kids, like discovered that not too long ago. My wife discovered that not too long ago. <laughs> well, nobody smokes pipes. My dad smoked a pipe. <laughs> My so dad I did, knew. My dad did too. And he used pipe cleaners. He used pipe cleaners. For his to pipe. clean his pipe. Right. That's what they're for. Yeah, I really. bet you were enlightening some people right now. Oh, wow. I never thought of that. Yeah. Because who has pipes? Who smokes a pipe? Popeye. Sea captains. That's it. Yeah. Popeye was a sea captain. <laughs> he was. <laughs> there you go. He was a seafaring man. He was. And he ate his spinach. He did. Speaking of that, I'm kind of hungry. So I think uh, I should go eat some spinach. There you go. I think we should wrap up. The first half sure. of Hold Your Fire. And on the next podcast, we'll tackle side two of Hold Your Fire, including your favorite song, Jer, Tai Shan. Okay. We'll it's get, my least favorite song. We'll get to this okay. in the second podcast for Hold Your Fire, which will be the fourth Something for Nothing podcast. You can check us out on Twitter at Rush Fancast, Instagram at The Rushcast, email therushcast at gmail.com. We encourage you to reach out to us. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you'd like to hear in future podcasts. We appreciate you listening. And um, until next time, Jerry, you've got a quote for me, I hope. Oh, sure. Yeah. Remember, Steve, tough times demand tough talk. All right. We'll see you later.